Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. One of the most consistent things we ask people to do in the healing journey is to find a community of support. For a lot of people, that's going to be a 12-step group or some kind of group process, even their family and friends. But a lot of people are spiritual or religious and look to their churches, look to their pastors or their bishops or their different leaders to try and help them find a community of support, especially when it involves sexual issues, sexual brokenness, sexual acting out, healing from sexual betrayal. These are very sensitive issues, and they're a hard thing to talk about in community. And one of the most challenging places for most people, unfortunately, is their own church. A lot of the times people will say things like, man, I just really don't want anybody to know about this. And at church, I feel the most judged, and I would just die if anybody knew this. And it's just a really scary thing. And what's so ironic about it, of course, is that we're supposedly going to church to heal from brokenness, to heal from sins and to deal with our own humanness and our own struggles through life. And yet it's the one place a lot of people feel judged and feel pressure to be perfect. So I invited on the show today someone that I think does such a fantastic job addressing this topic. And his name is Daniel Weiss. And Daniel is the executive director of the Sexual Integrity Leadership Summit, which equips, supports, and collaborates with Christian leaders to promote gospel-centered sexuality in the church. Daniel has a passion for the sexually broken and the need for pastors, parents, and Christian leaders to respond with courage, compassion, and truth to the sexual challenges of our age. He is a co-author of the book Treading Boldly Through a Pornographic World, a field guide for parents. And in addition to his professional work, Daniel and his wife work daily to create a home of faith, forgiveness, and laughter and love in the Wisconsin countryside where they live with their five children. I love hearing from Daniel. He is one of the thought leaders and intellectuals and, and spiritual leaders that I look up to. He's someone that has inspired me in so many ways in my own journey. And I just really look up to him so much. I think he's just a fantastic contributor on this topic. And he's done a lot of work to help the Christian community, faith community, really learn how to talk about these things in a non-shaming, non-judgmental way. In our episode today, my wife Jody and I talk with Daniel and really want to get into a good discussion about the challenge of sexual brokenness in the church environment and why this gets distorted not only culturally but even misunderstood inside of the context of a faith community. And we talk about sexual brokenness and how sometimes we just don't know how to respond to these things in very healthy ways at all. And we talk about healthy ways to respond not only to ourselves but also to those of us, those who we love in our faith communities, our neighbors, our friends, how we can talk about sexual brokenness and the struggles of living in a body and dealing with temptation that surrounds us without inducing unhealthy levels of shame. We don't want to keep people in hiding. We want clergy to teach and administer around these sensitive topics in effective ways. And Daniel's life work is to teach people how to do exactly that. I think you'll really enjoy this interview. We certainly enjoyed talking with Daniel and sure appreciate him. So let's dive in to our interview with Daniel Weiss. Well, Daniel, we're thrilled to have you on the podcast. Yeah, we are really excited that you're here. Thanks for taking the time with us. Oh, yeah, absolutely great to reconnect with you, Jeff and Jody, and to be on your show and just have an opportunity to talk with you about these matters that are really difficult for a lot of people. Well, Daniel, one of the first introductions to your work was when we were both were featured in the documentary, The Heart of the Matter, with Jessica Mockett as the director there. And one thing that stood out to me, I as you were talking, as I was watching the film, you had said something that 
actually made me laugh a little bit. You said something like, you know, imagine how horrified any of us would be if we went to church and discovered that we were sitting next to other sinners. And the concept was just so ridiculous. I kind of chuckled and was like, right, like that's exactly why we go to church, supposedly. And so I really appreciated your ability to articulate the struggle that we all have being in an environment where we're supposed to be seeking healing and redemption, yet it almost seems you know, like we're all there to sort of perform for each other, pretend that maybe we're not there for the same reason. Yeah, that was a profound kind of thought for just my own development as well. And, you know, I have to admit, it's not my own thought. I, I took that from, it was a part of a book written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor and theologian in the 1930s. And so even back then, we had that problem. I think that's a very human problem. Mm-hmm. But But Bonhoeffer wrote that, the final obstacle to true Christian fellowship is the inability to be sinners together. Mm. And so he made that point that many people would be horrified to find sinners in their midst. And then sinners conversely understand this. People who know the weight of their sin feel like maybe they don't belong in this place is the reverse of that. And so again, that's Mm. counterproductive to what the church should be. But as you said, and I agree with it, so we struggle against that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I, as I've worked with people over the years, a lot of my clients and people I've known have said like, oh man, I feel God's presence more in a 12-step meeting than I do in my own church congregation. That, you know, it's like we all come together under the same, almost like level of honesty that we all struggle in a 12-step meeting. When I go to church, there's sort of maybe this impression that there's a few select people and there are maybe most people are doing really, really well and don't really need any kind of redemption. That's a great point about 12-step meetings, because one of the reasons they're successful is because, you know, step one, we admit we were powerless Mm -hmm. over our addictions or our brokenness. And it kind of levels the playing field. And I, kind of the way I see it, whether it's dealing with sex addiction, lust, pornography, infidelity, these kind of taboo sins we have is if we could just level the playing field and admit we're kind of all in this together, we're all struggling through this, I think our fellowship would be strengthened tremendously. And that's really why those programs work so well. It's the strength of the community, not just the strength of the individual. And I think that's one of the keys that many churches haven't figured out how to create that kind of authentic space, that safe space for people to be honest about what they're doing. Yeah. When you use the word fellowship, you're talking about the way we relate to each other, the way that we approach each other about our own human condition. Is that what you mean by that? I do, but I think it's even more basic than that. I mean, I remember when I joined the church I'm currently at, they had gone through some pretty severe relational difficulties, some schisms. And I remember coming in, meeting very friendly people, but but everyone was very reserved. And I kind of likened it to we were about arm's length away from each other. You could barely get a touch in, if you will, in very little handshaking, even certainly no hugging. So there was a relational fracture there. So in a situation like that, that has nothing to do with sexuality, there's still a fellowship element that was sorely lacking. So if you don't have it in just kind of the basic element of your community, you're not going to be able to get it in something deeper when it comes to personal woundedness or brokenness. So I think it has multiple layers, Jeff, but certainly we're not going to get to that deeper layer if we don't also just know how to be a family together, a community to care for one another and and express that care in meaningful ways. Oh, that is so, that really resonates with me because as I've moved around and attended different congregations in my church, I've had different experiences where some felt immediately more like there was a family connection or a sense of friendship. And there's been other times where it didn't feel like that. In fact, I'm the organist for my church right now, my congregation. And last week, actually, this couple days ago on Sunday, I was playing the organ and my sheet music fell off and I couldn't finish the song without it sounding horrible. So I just was trying to improvise and do my best while everybody's singing. And it was just like the worst case scenario and pretty embarrassing. You know, if you're a musician and you know what it's like to choke up there in front of everybody, 
I was pretty flustered and I finished and, you know, it sounded like a third grade piano recital by the end. <laughs> it was pretty rough. But I sat there up on the, the stand, the rostrum there, and I was looking out over the congregation. And what immediately brought peace and calm to me was the recognition that these are all my friends. You know, these are people that I just feel comfortable with. They're people I know, people that a lot of my neighbors, just people that I know are good people. And, you know, they've had their own struggles in different ways. I knew enough about a little bit about a lot of them that it felt like I'm okay. This is just part of the human experience and we all move on. I think that when you talk about fellowship, I'm like, right. Like there's a level of safety. There's a level of security. There's a level of ownership that we're all just in this together as a group. And then I think you're right. Then it can advance into these more sensitive topics when needed. Yeah. And just think of the level of trust that you just described in that congregation where as flustered as you felt, you felt some pretty quick peace or calm because of the level of trust. And again, the way you said it is, I know a little bit about a lot of people. So in many ways, it doesn't even take all that much. We can't really do life when we have a mask on or when we've hidden some of the most vital core parts of our being. And I think that's why the message of the AA meeting is so powerful. People Mm -hmm. have learned to set those masks aside mostly in part because they've seen everyone else in the room do it first. It's taken a newcomer some time before he or she feels comfortable with that. And I think, you know, prior to the AA meeting, some people find that kind of community in a bar setting where they <laughs> sit there and they're, yeah. they're sharing a beer with someone, and, but they don't feel anxious. They feel like they can just share openly and the bartender's not going to judge them and the, the buddy next to them isn't going to judge them. So I think it's a challenge and an opportunity for us to, in appropriate ways, figure out how can we increase the level of trust in entering into relationships more deeply in our communities. Yeah, imagine. I mean, like to church of all places, to go there and have that kind of trust with everyone around you where it can really create a context for just healing from the bumps and bruises we all get just traveling this mortal journey. but. Also, when we are really, you know, tipped over and struggling and needing something a lot more deep and redemptive, not feeling judgment from those around us. I mean, that's critical. And I think that's a hard thing to come by, isn't it? (laughs) Well, it is. And it takes someone who's not afraid. And I'm just thinking, I mentioned my church earlier, how uh, hands, arms length it was. Shortly after we joined, I helped start a men's group there, and it wasn't for addiction purposes, just men getting together. And I think it was after the very first meeting, and I happened to be leading that one, and I kind of forced everyone into an open prayer (laughs) (laughs) and go around the room and pray. And of course, that's not exactly common in our tradition. So it it made people be vulnerable. Mm. And right after, when that meeting ended, one of the men came up to me and just started weeping. He was just so, his heart was so grieved at what was happening in that church and the relational fractures. I mean, we had just started to get to know one another, but I felt a bond with him that's been very, very strong ever since. I mean, we're great friends now. And sometimes it just takes something to get the crack, to start the crack that will open up that mask or open up those walls. And it's really something anyone can do, but, but it, probably takes someone to be the leader, to be the first one to say, hey, I think it's okay if we talk about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that can happen on the kind of congregate level, but I think that, you know, I know that that there's an important need there for leadership to also do that. Yeah. I think it really comes down to intentionality. Mm -hmm. And if we say this is important to have a safe space, to be able to open up and be vulnerable and for people to accept and walk with us through that, then we have to be intentional in creating those spaces. So really for leadership or, or, you know, laity in the congregation, it's just the simple question, what could we do to start that process? Or what could we do to create something authentic that would open people up? So I know that I recently read a study that, that you had done where you had shown that only 25% of clergy felt comfortable even addressing these issues or felt competent to address those issues. And I, I was surprised at how low that was for frontline 
people that are receiving these kinds of concerns from their, their congregations. Yeah, we had, we had done some research with Barna Group and a collection of two dozen different ministries got together to just get a baseline for understanding where the church was due to some constraints. This was a survey of 400 senior pastors in Protestant churches in the U.S. But, you know, while the pastors all, you know, a high percentage of pastors said addressing these topics, sexual topics, was very important for churches to do and for pastors to do, when it came to their own confidence levels, those were very low. You know, even the highest percentage topics like marital infidelity, something they probably deal with most frequently, really only had a 33, 35% confidence rate or high confidence rate with pastors. So there is a bit of a disconnect between kind of desire and the ability to carry it out in our churches, whether that's, you know, for a number of reasons, maybe they don't feel equipped in training, or maybe there's relational confrontational challenges in their churches, but pastors don't perhaps feel as equipped as they would like on so many of these issues. Yeah, so challenging because this is, I mean, this is oftentimes where people go first when they feel sexually broken or dealing with some sort of a crisis in their life around usually infidelity or some sort of compulsive behavior or something like that. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you're reaching out. And I know I know in our, our church, our faith, there's a lot of efforts on the, our church's website and others trying to train and teach leaders how to deal with these issues. But it's just a matter of actually watching them, learning, opening themselves up to it. So 25% is not going to get it. You know, It's just not enough. We need to do more. Yeah. And I think that really is asking for a different approach than what we've typically done. And we've typically been reactive. So again, these pastors aren't necessarily leading and teaching on these topics in their congregations. What's happening based on our research is more often they're they're receiving problems and then dealing with them. Mm. And so the problem is we're only in a, a kind of a disease model or a, a moral breakdown model rather than understanding, as we said earlier, you know, everyone's sexually broken in some way. And I can explain that a little bit further. But the idea is this is not something that's ancillary or secondary to what it means to be human. All right. This is a basic human problem. And it has been from the beginning of time. As people have been confused, wounded, and broken in their sexuality. And I believe certainly that's what motivates me in my work, that churches should be leaders in this area, opening up these topics. And not only talking about brokenness issues, but teaching good, godly, healthy design. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What is sex for? How are we meant to understand and live these things out? And I think if the church can shift that paradigm to a proactive, intentional pursuit of godliness, pursuit of you know healthy sexuality, we would see a transformation in our churches. Oh, it'd be rough as we go through that transition. It would be hard. We have to be honest. But we would see some significant transformation, not only in the church, but I think in society at large. Well, yeah, that's absolutely right. And instead of just, like you said, playing defense, you know, just navigating all the stuff coming. I mean, can you imagine if the church going people were were being given like tools and healthy understanding of sexuality ahead of time Mm -hmm. and had those types of things in their toolbox when problems arise, that's a huge game changer. So let's definitely talk about your comment that everybody is sexually broken. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, if we only see things in terms of a moral lens, it tends to get rather challenging to understand some issues of brokenness. But I would look at this, the, the best analogy I've come up with is if you live in a factory town, And on the one end of the town, the factory is just churning out smoke, sulfur fumes. The closer you are to that smokestack, probably the worse your health is going to be. But even people on the other end of town are going to inhale that smoke because they're in a climate where smoke is present. And we live in a climate, a social climate, where unhealthy pornographic sexuality is present in our everyday lives, whether we seek it out or not. Right. But even... We're not necessarily even drawn to it, but we're still basically consuming it. Mm -hmm. If we just turn on the TV, if we just turn on the radio, I mean, if you drive down and see a a highway billboard, you're being exposed to 
basically toxic sexuality. So we know, I mean, brain studies show when we take these messages in, whether consciously or subconsciously, they do affect us and they change the way we think about things. So in that sense, that's kind of what I mean. Everyone is affected by this toxic sexuality because we're all growing up and living our lives in this toxic culture. So again, that I use that to say, let's normalize the fact that people are being compromised. And it's not necessarily a moral, poor moral choice they're making. Often our poor moral choices are being made because we haven't seen or been exposed to something else. We don't, a lot of people don't know there's anything else out there because they're not hearing it. So I think we can have a great deal of compassion on people who are struggling with very specific sexual brokenness or sins, but understanding that when we eliminate the us, them kind of mentality or dichotomy, and it's just us, I think we're all more motivated to kind of work together to bring that healing and that restoration. Yeah, like I'm not breathing the smoke, but my neighbor probably is. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. My fence is higher than that. <laughs> or the smoke doesn't get over it. You know, we're all tempted to say that. And I think that's why it's so important to just be honest and say, look, we're in this culture. Let's just treat that as normal. The culture itself is normalizing us. So let's normalize our conversations and our pushback on this. And our healthiness. Let's normalize the fact that we talk about this. Why is it so hard? Antidote. Why is it so hard to talk about? Why are we just so hesitant and unwilling? You know, honestly, I don't know if I have, I think there's multiple things going on here, but I'm reminded that if we go back to like the writings of the New Testament and the early church, these topics of sexuality were very, very often talked about in these letters. So the fact that early Christians, kind of the church was born in a very sexually toxic culture, very much like our own, the Roman culture, with open prostitution, temple prostitution, people were being sexually exploited as slaves and servants. So the people coming to faith were very, almost certainly, many of them were deeply sexually broken people. They had been deeply abused and exploited. And so the church understood this, but they talked about it compassionately, but with truth and very open and said, let's deal with these things in the community of our churches, our community churches. And, and I think we've lost that for whatever reason, maybe 1950s prudishness or reactivity towards the cultural, the sexual revolution. So we, we tended to close off in the church. But I think this is yeah. a great gospel point today. We, we have a message. This world They don't know they want it, and they don't know they need it, but they desperately want it, and they desperately need it because they they want to be reminded of what it means to be human and what love is and what connection is. Everyone's seeking for connection and intimacy these days, just in the wrong ways. Yeah. Yeah, that is really powerful and so such a great reminder of of you know our own legacy, our own heritage around these issues that perhaps we've forgotten or departed from. And so I love that permission to go back biblically just to say they didn't hesitate to talk about these things, the issues that of their day, the issues that were affecting the very people they were serving and teaching. And man, and with the internet and everything else like that, I mean, we are as bad or maybe worse in terms of the toxicity of the fumes. It's really pervasive. And especially for our young people who we can't really protect anymore the way that, you know, we maybe could in the past just because you know, there just was less access. Well, and we've all been immersed in a culture that says, well, you shouldn't be breathing those fumes. How could you breathe those fumes? That breathing those fumes is for sinners. It's for Mm -hmm. some people who are just really, really bad off. Right. And so we don't like that. That's just kind of the, the heritage that we bring to needing to talk about this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there's competing messages here that people have to tease out. The culture is saying, why are you even concerned about this? Yeah. Do whatever you want. And that's the majority of the messages we get in the culture. You know, often in the church, it's, I mean, I remember ta- I was giving a speech once and a, and a man came up to me and he said, you know, I heard everything you said, but I don't believe you could struggle with sexual sin and be a true believer. <laughs> Just was kind of <laughs> like, I'm not sure I understand your theology at all because you know, what is the purpose of Jesus if we're not sinners? I mean, 
what is the purpose of forgiveness and redemption if we don't have sin in the first place? The fact that it happens to be sexual may be distasteful to us personally, but it's not something that's a surprise to God. The fact that he created this to be good and it got perverted and distorted historically and in our own lives. I mean, that's why we turn to God. There is a brokenness there. And none of us looks at another person absolutely correctly, perfectly every moment of our lives or every person. You know, we just don't do it. And so I think one part of this that we maybe don't discuss enough is it's just grace. It's just having the ability to say, we're, we don't deserve this, but God gives it in. God gives us forgiveness. And we can give it ourselves forgiveness and we can forgive others. Say, we're not living up to what we want. But the other word I really love is chastity. It's kind of an old word, a Roman Catholic word, if you, if you will. But it's, it's really about the disposition of the heart and the right ordering of our sexuality. And I kind of t- approach it as we can gain this in increasing measure throughout our lives. So we can move forward and gain chastity, that right ordering of our heart and our desires. We don't get it perfectly in this life, but we can move toward it. And it's a good goal and it serves God and it serves others really well. Yeah, I highlighted a lot of that. You, there's a For our listeners, there's a bigger discussion on chastity that you talk about in your book, Treading Boldly. Um, his new book. And I would encourage all of you to get, grab a copy of that. And, and even if you're not parenting children in your home right now, the kind of discussion that you get into around this word chastity was, was really eye-opening for me. And this is a word that's actually commonly used in our faith quite a bit. Mm-hmm. We talk about the law of chastity. And a lot of the times, chastity is often just viewed as, a, as like, a, as like a, a hard line, you know, like don't do these things. But I loved how you really talked about how chastity is so much more than just a prohibition. Yeah, it's really, instead of the big no, it's the big yes. It's the big yes to, I understand that I'm a created being and God created me as a sexual and relational being and he has purposes and design and there's blessing in this. Mm -hmm. And so if I want to say yes to those things God has created me for, and God has created others for, and God has the purpose for which he has created sexuality. And the many purposes, really, the bonding spouses to one another, creating new life, of bringing joy, of that ecstatic spiritual union, the bodily union. These are good things. So so I want to say yes to as much of that as possible. That's really the heart of chastity. We tried to explain it in the way it makes the most sense to me, really, personally. Yeah, it's just so powerful. And it really gets into this, you know, this discussion, you were, you know, this, I guess the distinction you made a, a little bit ago about there's sort of reactive ways we can deal with this as parents and as leaders in congregations or even just congregants ourselves. And then there's, there's proactive or supportive ways we can normalize and talk about these things. And I, you know, your definition of chastity is very much more the reactive, like, well, don't do these things. And if they do, we'll deal with it. But really, this is about how can we have a bigger discussion about all of this on an ongoing basis. And in your experience and in your own personal work and ministry and the, the work you're doing, how do we start talking about this stuff? How do we talk about sexual brokenness without inducing you know, more shame or letting people feel scared about it? What have you seen really work with this? Well, just, a, I guess, a, a note to point out is if there's a pastor priest listening to this, um, another Christian leader and saying, wow, we're really not there. I'm not even close to what he's talking about. You know, that's pretty much where everyone's at these days. There are very few churches that I've seen that are highly engaged on sexual topics. They're out there. According to our research, about about 5% of those pastors we surveyed were highly intentionally engaged on sexuality issues. Maybe another 20% were moderately engaged. So that leaves about 75%, you know, and and then 50% had very little engagement and 25% had no engagement. So we're starting at at a deficiency as a church. And that's Mm -hmm. okay to just admit that. I'm not, I'm not blaming pastors. That's not the point and that's not helpful, but we can recognize we're starting at a deficiency here. You know, you mentioned our book for parents from a very early age with my own kids. I tried to normalize both 
what a God's design for things was. And this is way before we talked about sex. We talked about how to, you know, even use their toys properly, not sit in their dolly stroller because it would break. And then, of course, it broke. When we talk about design and what things are made for. But I also tried to bring some level of awareness that things aren't always the way they're supposed to be. And for kids, they're really looking for security and boundaries and things are supposed to be right. But I think, as you said, we can no longer protect our kids. We can no longer protect our congregations from talking about this. So I just said, start slow, be humble, start with a posture of learning and prayer. And one thing that's really, really important in all this is that Christian leaders have to have found peace in their own sexual brokenness. They have oh, to have yeah. found to be helpful. Yeah. To be, they, it doesn't mean they're fully healed, but they've got to be on the journey. They've got to be honest about it. And we believe that when leaders show vulnerability, openness, and honesty, the rest of the congregation will likely follow, many of them. It's never a perfect you know, process, but I worked with a pastor nearby locally where I work in Wisconsin, and he came out and told his story about pornography addiction right in the Sunday sermon. But he had been very smart. He certainly talked with his wife first. He was in recovery. He talked with his church elders first, so everyone was on the same page. There were no shocks or surprises. And then he was ready to help people who came forward, and they started some groups in their churches. It's become a very redemptive process, and it took him to go first. And so I think there's an opportunity for leaders. It's a scary step, but to first find healing, like not run away from it anymore and get that healing and get in that recovery, or at least just be open and honest about what's gone on in our past. That's a big step. And then to move forward in community. Going back to the, the, the original part, let's do this in community with you know, love and support of others who, who believe the way we do and share those same desires to be healthy. Yeah, but it really starts at the top of just doing your own work, as they say, right? Yeah. Yeah, just being yeah, able to model. You can't give what you don't have. In fact, part of the study we did with Barna, and we haven't released all these results publicly, but we found that we did ask about sexual brokenness issues among the seniors' pastors, and about 41% of them indicated they had had some, at least one kind of issue of sexual brokenness, like looking at pornography. Some were greater, going to strip clubs or getting involved in prostitution or homosexuality. But about 41% said they had had an issue in the last year. And, and everyone believes pastors aren't talking about this because they're compromised. But what our research found is the pastors that we're dealing with this. And we ask about recovery issues, you know, processes people were in. The pastors that were engaged in their recovery, even if they had a stumble or a fall in the last year, were far more intentional on these issues. They were talking about them at greater rates than those that indicated no kind of recovery or, or even no problem. And many pastors said they didn't have any problem at all. And they were the least engaged on mm -hmm. sexual issues in their congregation. So it's almost like if I don't have a problem, no one else does. So again, that's just another thing to sensitize us. We expect things out of our leaders, and they do. They're held to a higher standard. I agree with that. But they're not inhuman. And even if they fall, they can be doing excellent things. I mean, obviously, major moral failures have to, you know, I'm not trying to excuse a moral failure. I'm just saying, if we can see that this is a process and a journey of recovery, we're on together. We're less freaked out by if a pastor had to slip and looked at porn for five minutes once a year versus someone who's got it all buried and isn't talking about and there's no healing in that community. So, again, I'm not trying to excuse anyone's moral failure. I'm just yeah. there's different ways to see this. Mm -hmm. But like you were saying, the ones that that are honest about their own humanness and their own brokenness and their struggle then grace and redemption is active in their life. And I mean, what a more powerful message for the people they're trying to teach about grace and redemption <laughs> mm -hmm. because they're living it. They are the recipients of it and they're open to it instead of pretending that, that that's for someone else or, or just, again, just you know, living a, a, a dual life. I think that that kind of permission is huge to be able to say you get to be a human and still lead and inspire and serve other people in this capacity. Mm -hmm. Well, and I keep having the, the story come up in my mind 
as we have this conversation of the woman being brought before the Savior who was caught in sin, and how in that scenario, his strongest words for the, were for those who sat in judgment of her. And that the concern, his concern is not, are you dealing with, are you facing and dealing with a problem? His concern was, are you judging, are you making a practice of judging somebody else for facing and dealing with a problem, as opposed to facing and dealing with your problem, mm-hmm. which everybody had in that scenario and everybody has in ours. Yeah, that's such a humbling story. I mean, when you look at it, you realize, you know, I think people tend to kind of have visions of what they might have done back in the time of Jesus. And I would never have reacted that way. And like, well, you probably would have. Uh, we, you know, if we're honest, we might have had stones in our hands. Jeff, you mentioned the stone that I gave you at the conference some years ago. And that's kind of the visual reminder. We're all likely to pick up stones at some point. Uh Um, Mm -hmm. The beautiful thing about grace and forgiveness is when we can put those stones down, not only for other people, but the stones we would aim at our own heart, our own selves, you know, and, but again, that takes that community of people. And I think it does take leadership. Just to go back to one thing that the study where the pastors didn't feel equipped, I would say to pastors and other church leaders, women's leaders, men's groups, leaders, you do not have to have all the answers. The fact that you bring something up and begin to process it and make it safe for people to talk about it is a huge step of leadership. Mm. And it is going to do so much for those people that are kind of caught in their own shame and secrecy. And that's not necessarily what all community is about, is, is providing the answers. Sometimes we just sit to comfort those that are grieving or struggling. And just to open up a safe space in our churches to say, hey, I don't have the answers. Let's walk this together as a congregation and we'll learn along the way and we'll wrestle through these things. I think that would be an amazingly healthy church, even as it might be dealing with incredible issues of sexual and relational brokenness at the same time. And so languaging that in a way that invites people when you don't know, it's really, you're saying it's coming from a place of I recognize this is a real thing, maybe even some appropriate self-disclosure about your own struggles, like you were saying, but even just acknowledging that we're all breathing the same air, as, as you said earlier, and then having that, st- that kind of position of curiosity and willingness to learn together, that could be in, in addressing these in, in Sunday sermons or lessons or discussion groups or things like that, like just giving people permission that this is something that we're not going to shy away from. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I like how you said appropriate disclosure. There are good ways of doing these disclosing things, and there are bad ways of doing it, too. <laughs> um, we want to use discernment and wisdom. But, you know, the language I developed after kind of seeing the results of that Barna study is, is many churches have what I call a reinforcing cycle of silence. And it goes like this. The pastor doesn't have a lot of people coming into his office talking about transgenderism or homosexuality or marital infidelity or pornography use. And therefore, he de-emphasizes these topics in his teaching or, you know, in the classroom setting or from the pulpit. And then the people in, in the congregation listening never hear these topics mentioned. So whether they're dealing with them or not, they understand kind of, you know, it's, it's an unspoken rule that these aren't issues we deal with here. And so they're less likely to go to their pastor with, for help if they're dealing with anything. And the longer this goes on, the more the pastor feels like it's not a priority for their congregation, you know, and the, and the people feel less safe to bring these up. And, and I've had conversations with pastors who say, well, yeah, I know these are issues, but they're not an issue in my church. <laughs> oh. And my response is, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating effect that that can have of just creating silence around it. And thinking everything's going great. (laughs) Yeah. And we're super healthy. And people just will not bring up these very sensitive, very personal issues if they don't feel safe. Yeah. If there's not safety, they will not talk about it. And and why should we shouldn't blame them? I mean, we know the damage, spiritual, emotional, relational damage that happens with some of these sexuality issues. So again, Jeff, your point, just to begin to open up the conversation and say, we want to be a church. We want to be a community that where people aren't hiding. 
And we're on the front end of this. We're going to be talking and praying about it and leadership. And we're going to start talking more openly about these things. That right there is going to terrify people. (laughs) Yes. But it's also going to make a lot of people hopeful. All right. You know, Jesus went after the lost one. We have to go out to people. We can't expect them to just come to us all the time with their problems. They're lost and frightened and alone. We need to be the ones as the leaders to go out and get them and to make it safe for them to come home. Mm, I just got chills when you said that. Mm -hmm. That was powerful. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's, that's, again, the difference between being reactive to it, which is, can be so shaming, which is like, oh, we got to deal with this now because you brought this to me and I've got to, and even your own unpreparedness or your own, you know, if you're a leader feeling like overwhelmed, instead of just admitting, I haven't done a good job of dealing with this or looking at this. And so let me help you. It's not that. Usually it's just like, well, let's just get rid of this or get this over with as quickly as possible. Versus like you said, I'm on the hunt. I'm giving permission. I'm recognizing that there's a lot of wolves out there and a lot of lost sheep. And like, I'm going to be on the offensive. What a powerful message. That's so much permission. It's incredible. Well, that's why I love conversations like this where we can, you know, there is a way forward. It's not an easy path. It requires us to change our thinking uh, many times. Yeah. But the freedom behind it is just, it's remarkable. And Mm -hmm. when you see people walking in freedom who had been bound up for decades, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've had that experience. Jeff, you heard me talk some years back, but just talking at churches, you have an 82-year-old great-grandmother come up to you and say, I was abused as a child, as a teenager. There's a freedom in that, you know, not me personally, but by talking at that church, you know, that made it a safe thing for her to bring up. And I don't know if she told her pastor that or not, but she felt safe saying that to me. And I just thank God for that because she was seen, she was seen and she was heard and she was valued and respected and honored in that moment where she shared that. And Mm. I could just communicate love and acceptance of her. And it's just, those are just sacred moments. Oh, we should be running towards those. There's just such freedom in Mm -hmm. that. So what do you think about just regular everyday parishioners? Are there things that we can do in how we show up that can encourage that kind of openness and safety? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I'm so glad you brought that up. I do believe, in fact, this was the kind of the theme of the talk I gave that Jeff heard uh, so many years ago. It was looking at the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here's just an average guy coming along and sees someone wounded. And in that story, the clergy and the religious leaders didn't want to deal with it, kind of moved along to the other side of the road. But this average person said, I see someone hurting. So first acknowledged the person, then went over to help. Didn't have all the expert help personally, but took that wounded man to in the end where he could be cared for with, you know, with greater care and expertise. And then it's like, if we just as everyday ordinary people begin talking about this, begin asking questions, begin talking to our leaders and say, we'd really like to learn more about this. We'd like our Mm -hmm. church to be more open to having these conversations, maybe going through like video resources the the film heart of the matter is a great one for opening up conversation it's so grace-filled and, and just so gentle with the topic. But giving opportunities for people to have a voice and be able to share that voice. And finally, personal testimony is a huge thing. So we, we might not, leadership might not be ready for it, but if you can have a person give a testimony, mm. and whether that's shared one-on-one, mm. yeah, mm-hmm. whether that's shared in a small group or in front of a congregation, that gives others permission not only to feel what they're feeling in a real way and stop denying it, but to know there's hope and then to know there's someone else they could talk to. So it's a lot larger, mm-hmm. I think, that testimony than, than a lot of people think. Yeah. Yeah, those are great ways to start because mm-hmm. I think you could listen to this, even this podcast, and feel like, well, I'm not in a position of influence or leadership in my church or my community. And so what do I have to do? Just keep listening yeah. to everybody deny this? Yeah. Or I wish that leader would just yeah take care of it or do it differently. But yeah, be a part of the solution. Yeah, this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I love talking about this. I mean, we, we're very active in our church community and we care deeply about creating communities where people can feel seen and heard. I, I, I teach a Sunday school class and try and bring in examples to humanize this and stories and my own examples of, of just struggling as a, as a husband, a father, 
And I want to hear more of that. I want to hear, and I'm like, church is the best place to do yeah. it. Like we are all there. Yeah, we we're showing to. up to heal, supposedly, yeah. and that's <laughs> what that's better what place? Contribute to yeah, that. It's, uh-huh. it's already built. It's already there. Let's <laughs> take advantage. The container's there. <laughs> well, yeah, just you know, I'm so glad to hear of your just active role in that, um, Jeff. But I, I had a vision. I was in church some years back, and I was sitting there. At that time, we sat in the back with our small kids, and I just had the vision of a church as a laundromat, and everyone coming supposedly to wash their dirty clothes, <laughs> but everyone came, they had washed their clothes at home, and they were presenting these like clean pressed white clothes, <laughs> and putting those in the in the wash tumblers. Oh my gosh! And, put, and <laughs> I can so relate. <laughs> everyone came in their they literally came in their Sunday best. And none of their dirty clothes got washed, you know? And, oh, I and love so, it. man, we, <laughs> Jeez, we've got, it, so it, it's a laundromat. You know me. what I'm saying? It's it's not the formal ball. It's no. the laundromat. Yeah. Let's bring our dirty stuff together mm-hmm. and find camaraderie. If you hang out in laundromat with someone you're folding clothes and starting a conversation, I mean, it can be a beautiful thing. It can be, um, mm. we just have to re-envision some of this. Oh, I love that <laughs> metaphor. That's spot on. Man. <laughs> Yeah, that that calls it out pretty well. <laughs> yeah. So, in in wrapping up here, Daniel, I mean, I I wish we could. We'd love to have you back if that's okay to yeah, talk. Maybe sure. even to talk about your book, Treading Boldly, mm-hmm. specifically more about because there's so much families can do in their own home around changing the culture, and you get enough families doing this, it'll start to trickle down eventually into congregations and communities. I mean, so I think you know you've you've written a great book that starts with something we can all do something with, which is our own families. But I I'd love just just as we wrap up. You know, you're, you know, you've shared so much already, but just maybe a couple thoughts on what you would love to sort of the vision of what you would love to see in what the healthiest church, the healthiest sort of what God designed for us as, as sexual beings, like what, what those sermons, what those messages would look like, just as you kind of cast a vision here of what it's possible here. Yeah. Well, the sermons, like I, I think I've alluded to, I, I really would hope churches would take great pains to normalize the fact that people are struggling. And that is, a, it is a, it's not an okay thing. It's a normal human thing, but not even like a normal human thing. We're being attacked. And to normalize the fact that we're coming in, not only with bad poor decision-making, but we're being wounded. We're being wounded in our thinking and our spirit and our relationships. So to see the church as kind of a, initially, it, even just a triage center, to recognize yeah. there are people coming in with wounds. Let's not pretend this is the end of the line convalescent where people are mostly healthy and just waiting to walk out of here. Um, I think we have to understand the church is performing a variety of services there from triage to you know healing. But again, to remind people what we were made for, I think this is should not be a hard lesson in a church setting. I mean, we talk about God, we're talking about God's creation. But somehow we don't talk about God's creation when it comes to humans enough and, and what sexu- how sexuality plays a role in this. And I just love Genesis 1. We look at God's creative action. It's both calling something out and then dividing it. It's calling out and dividing. It's creating and dividing it. And he does that with male and female as well. So it's creating humanity and dividing it to male and female. And, and that's a godly part of creation. It's a very good thing. So I would love for churches to be leading the culture, frankly, on what it means to be human, to remind the culture that we are, in fact, human. I know that's a message that's under attack today, even. But to present that godly vision, that beautiful vision, and to not be afraid. Like, this is not a place, should not be a place of fear, whether we're dealing with something very challenging, deeply impactful in our lives or if we're just trying to make sense of the culture in which we live in or make sense for our kids. There's such an opportunity for the church to lead and just to thrive, even in a very sexually broken culture. I think the opportunity to, yeah. to lead is even greater now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Great summary. Thank you Yes. for that. And thank you for your work. We'll definitely have you back on. Yeah, I loved it. A great talking with you both. Love the work you're doing. And uh, I'm just so honored to be here with you. Thank you. Yeah, our privilege. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, you're welcome. 
You can learn more about Daniel and the great work that he's doing in his ministry at sexualintegrityleaders.com and also brushfiresfoundation.org. And I will put links to both of those as well as a link to his book, Treading Boldly Through a Pornographic World, A Field Guide for Parents. He's written some great stuff and his approach is so great, non-shaming, non-judgmental, but very effective in calling out our own struggles and compassionately addressing these things so that real change can actually happen. So thank you, thank you, Daniel. It's just great, the work you're doing. Love talking to you, and it's just a real honor and pleasure to have some time with you today. And I would also invite you to go check out fromcrisis2connection.com. There's past episodes of this podcast where you can find over 130 episodes with some great guests. And think of the people in your life that might benefit from some of these episodes, and please share it with them. Let them know that this resource is out there. I love knowing that there's this huge body of work out there of resources, interviews that could be such a blessing to people's lives. So please spread the word. I also have online courses. And did you know podcast listeners get 20% off of my Trust Building Bootcamp? It's a 12-week online video course. You can start at any time. And it has lots and lots of content to help you rebuild trust, create safe conditions for someone that you've hurt, and learn how to rebuild your relationships. And you can get 20% off that course by going to the checkout and entering the code PODCAST20. And that will automatically take off 20% and you can get started on that right away. And if you want regular updates on things that I'm working on and courses and other things that I might be releasing, make sure you go to fromcrisis2connection.com and get on my email list. And the way you get on my email list is by downloading a free handout that I have on how to end your marriage argument. You just click on that and it'll add you automatically to the email list and you'll be able to get an ongoing newsletter and get some cool content. So I love staying connected to you. Follow me on social media. Let's keep the conversation going. There's so much healing that we need to do to improve our relationships, to be healthier humans. I love being a part of it with you. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you guys in the next episode. 